for us today. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven. And God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty, king, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron and marble. Cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, <clears throat> dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who traveled by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea, will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, Was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour, she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be 
found again. The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeters, will never be heard in you again. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people, of all who have been slaughtered on earth. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Then the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. Meg, <laughs> you can just put it on. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks. Thanks so much. That was quite a lot of reading. Um, don't worry, we're just going to take it verse by verse. We should be done by Tuesday-ish. Um, just kidding. Um, my name is Lydia. I'm one of the pastors here, if you haven't gotten a chance to meet. Um, this passage got me thinking about uh, revenge movies. And when you think about violent revenge, like Hollywood doesn't exactly have a lack in its offerings, right? Um, one of the ones that came to mind was the movie Taken, starring Liam Neeson, who's um, avenging his daughter's kidnapping. You remember that one? There's John Wick, of course, starring Keanu Reeves, avenging the murder of his, his dog, actually. Uh, and yet, when I think about really satisfying endings um, in movies where the bad guys get taken down, the first movie that came to my mind was the 2007 film Michael Clayton. Does anybody remember this movie? It's like 13, 14 years old now. Um, but it's, it's a really great movie. It is a corporate sort of takedown legal thriller. Um, it stars George Clooney. He plays the fixer at his uh, law firm which happens to be re representing this corrupt chemical corporation um, in a multi-billion dollar lawsuit. 
And in the film, we see George Clooney's character uh, sort of torn between doing the right thing and exposing uh, this bad company responsible for the death of hundreds of people and doing his job for the law firm, which will in turn uh, help him pay off some personal debt. So we see this tension, right? And I hate to spoil it, but it's been, you know, 13-ish years, so if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry. But it's well worth seeing, even though you know the ending. It's really great acting. I think Tilda Swinton won um, uh, Oscar for her performance. But in the final scene of the movie, George Clooney's character confronts Tilda Swinton's character, and she plays the in-house counsel for this chemical corporation. And when she realizes how much he knows, like the truth about the company and the people that they've murdered in order to keep them quiet, she attempts to buy him out, offering to pay him millions of dollars for his silence. And so when she finally says the words, you've got a deal, George Clooney then reveals that he's been secretly recording her this whole time, including her own admission of the guilt, which effectively seals her fate, right? And so he pulls out his tape recorder and he says, in more colorful language, you're so in trouble. <laughs> says it a little differently than that, but you get the idea. But there's something about this image that was burned into my mind of sort of this like shaky Tilda Swinton uh, crumbling to her knees in the background, like in this sort of out of focus background as George Clooney walks away super satisfied that he's done the right thing, the cops swoop in, that feel, feels so satisfying, I remember it. And to me, like way more satisfying than a movie like Taken, that's just me, I'm not a big action movie fan, but, but eat, whatever your tastes are for stories, these kinds of scenes make for really compelling books and movies because they appeal to our inner sense of justice, right? That thing inside of us that longs for things to be made right. So often we go about our lives and we see a world out of order. Like on a large global scale, we see earthquakes and floods and famine and of course disease wreaking havoc on people and on nature. And on a human scale, we see people doing violence to each other, whether that's physical violence or in the ways that people are robbed of their humanity by the jobs that they're forced to work or the conditions they're forced to live in. And we also recognize it on a personal level, too, right? We see it in our own relationships because despite our, even our own best efforts, we can still see that ugliness creep up inside our own hearts, right? Turns out that we're equally culpable of the injustice that we see weaving throughout our every day, unfortunately. And so, not a day can go by that without us being made aware of injustice on one of these planes if not all three, right? And it looks, it seems, at least on the surface, that nothing is being done about it, like ever. Or at least that not enough is being done about it. And whether we're Christians or we're atheists or we're practitioners of another faith uh, system or wherever we fall on the spectrum, if you are human, you're forced to grapple with the question why do things not feel right to me? Like, why does the death of a loved one or even a stranger bother me? Why do I look at a picture of a city wiped out by a flood and my gut instinct is this should not be? 
why do I hear, hear stories of what's going on in Afghanistan? And I, my reaction is outrage. Where does this feeling come from? So Richard Dawkins, who I'm sure you are familiar with, famous atheist, evolutionary biologist, he would have us believe that these gut reactions are irrelevant. He wrote in his book, uh, The Blind Watchmaker, and I have the quote for you up here. He writes, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And yet, when I think about my friend married with three little girls who's battling metastatic breast cancer, watching her struggle every single day, my reaction is not, ah, well, that's just cancer cells for you. Some of us are going to get hurt. It might as well be hurt. No, of course not. Why does everything inside of me, when I watch her deal with this, scream that this is just unequivocally and unhesitatingly evil? What is happening to her? If we believe in the hope of the gospel, if we claim Jesus as Lord, we know that this is not the end of the story. That we are living as theologian, Gerhardus Voss famously termed it, we're living in the already but the not yet. We as Christ followers believe that the kingdom of God has already come and been, in, been ushered in in the person and the work of Jesus, but we also know that the kingdom won't reach its fullest expression until he comes again. It's here, it has come, and yet we don't see it in its fullness. And what we have been tasked with as Christians, as the church, is to bring what we know to be the future reality into the present. It's the Easter message, right? Right here in the middle of October. We're asked as Christians to live as though we know how the story ends because if, as we profess as Christians, we do, we do know how the story ends. We live with hope as people of the resurrection that when we die, that this is not the end. Evil and suffering and pain and injustice does not, will not have the final word. And so what that means for us now is that we can face whatever horrible thing that happens to us on this side of eternity in the same way that Jesus did when he went to the cross, knowing that God is for us and that we only have more life to gain on the other side. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we do not grieve as others do who have no hope. Note he says grieve. We do grieve. We do acknowledge the pain of suffering, but we have hope. So there's a common, there was a common inscription um, found on ancient gravestones in the Roman Empire, and it reflected a sort of popular Epicurean philosophy of the time. And it, it's what some scholars think that Paul is responding to here in 1 Thessalonians. And it read, I have up here, it's been like 20 years since I took Latin, so forgive the butchering of Latin for all the Latin teachers out there. Uh, non fui, fui. Non sum, non curo. Translation, I was not, I was, I am not, I care not. 
And what was meant by this was, I won't care one way or the other once I'm dead, Epicurus assumes, so I'm not going to care about death and suffering now when I'm alive. Well, when you put it that way, that's easy, right? Like, thanks. <laughs> and coincidentally, this is actually what is recited at some humanist funerals today. It's very heartwarming. Please, don't recite that at my funeral, whoever is listening. Uh, but perhaps this philosophy works for you. Maybe you can get on board with Epicurus and you don't worry about death, whether your own or other people's because it's not going to touch you, or you're down with Richard Dawkins and glo global catastrophes are nothing to you because you can recognize it for what it is, which is what he says is the, just the dance of DNA. But if you're not able to dismiss these feelings, as I probably imagine a lot of us in this room are not able to, if you can't shake the feeling that the world is not the way it ought to be, then you probably, in a similar fashion, can't help but feel a sense of goodness and satisfaction when you see those little glimmers and glimpses of justice. Whether it's hearing about a kidnapper being caught or the end of Shawshank Redemption, that same something within us that refuses to be indifferent to the suffering around us similarly cannot help but respond to when we see justice served. When evil is exposed for what it is, or as N.T. Wright puts it, when wickedness turns back on itself. It's that idea of poetic justice, like sort of an evil snake consuming its own tail. When that which intended to inflict harm ends up harming itself. So when we see moments that show even briefly that justice and not oppression and not violence will have the final word, there's that feeling of joy and victory that rises up in me that I, just, I can't even hardly describe. I can't really compare it to anything else. Uh, I, I personally hope that, that movie theaters aren't going to die out like due to COVID or whatever because it's the only time I get to experience that feeling in a corporate setting, and by corporate I mean a group of people, not like a business setting, is in a movie theater. Like when people are clapping and they shout or like they, I've actually seen one person like stand up at the end of a movie. Uh, when the bad guy goes down, like, where else do we get to experience that as a culture? And it feels really good. It's cathartic. It's healing. I missed it. So imagine that scene at the end of Michael Clayton where George Clooney takes down Tilda Swinton. Or, if you're a nerd like me, when Eowyn stabs the witch king of Angmar and says, I am no man. Yes, thank you. I'm not the only one. Or whatever story for you embodies that sense of ultimate justice and summon that feeling. And that's what John is presenting to us here in Revelation 18. So this is the last scene before we come to the end of the world. The fancy theological term for this is eschaton. It's one of my favorite words. It just sounds really cool. I know that there is a cheesy Christian metal band out there with that name, uh, but I love it. But it's right before the final inauguration of the kingdom of God. And it's, but what, it's been what John has been building towards this entire time. And in fact, it's the story that Jesus, or God rather, has been telling since the book of Genesis. Things didn't last long before immediately veering off course. We made it like a whole five minutes in the Garden of Eden before evil took over. But God quickly promised his people 
to eventually restore things to how they were always intended to be. And so ever since, humanity has been longing for this very moment. But things can't begin until evil is finally and once and for all destroyed. And so John intentionally places this detailed description of the fall of this empire immediately before giving us the picture of the new Jerusalem, which we'll get in a few chapters. Jerusalem will be, as one scholar put it, the ultimate, the most extensive picture of salvation. And so Babylon is the most extensive picture of judgment. And so here in this chapter, we have sort of this gleeful lament, this like celebratory eulogy over the destruction of Babylon. It's the revelation version of Ding Dong, the Witch is Dead from like Wizard of Oz. Sorry, I almost forgot what movie that was. But now I said Babylon is destroyed. And what is meant by Babylon, if you've been following along with us over these months, um, you figured out probably that John is not talking about the ancient 6th century city of Babylon. To 1st century Jews and Christians, Babylon became code for Rome because it too, just like Babylon had, had done in 587, it had destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And so by using this older moniker for this uh, current enemy, it underscores this idea that things have been wrong for a very long time. Empires have come and gone, but the evil behind them remains the same. And each time, as documented by the Psalms and Lamentations and just generally throughout the Old Testament, the people have cried out, how long, O Lord? How long will you watch your people cry out and be oppressed in their desire for justice? And so God has proven himself to be, time and time again, from the Exodus onward, a God who delivers, a God who responds to the cries of his people, as well as a God, as we'll hear in this chapter, as we heard in this chapter, who will not stand for injustice shown to anyone, not just his people. And yet these words today, as we heard Meg read them, as we <laughs> sat through them, they land awfully strong and violent on our ears today, right? And it makes sense that they should land that way. Like in the middle of October, we finally have some sunshine, like as we sip our coffee and we think about where we're going to brunch later and where we're going to go apple picking and all those good things. It's kind of it kind of resonates a little weird. Like, maybe we should just kind of calm down, John. Like, maybe that's a little extreme. And I absolutely get that. Or perhaps you're thinking, and it, Heather and I chuckled at that line about giving her a, a measure of torment and grief. It's like, wow, this does not sound very Christian. We, as American Christians, in a church setting can really be made to feel uncomfortable with certain moments like these in scripture, even though we're okay with that, those ideas in other contexts. Reading both the celebration of divine justice like we have here in today's passage, but also raw moments of outrage at God over his delay of that justice, they can come as a shock to us, right? And I think it's sadly because we've lost the practice of lament both of these things, a display of anger towards the lack of justice and then a display of that divine justice, they offend our sensibilities because we don't know how to handle the suffering that's associated with them. Many of us, myself 100% included in this, benefit from relative privilege and comfort and stability 
And so we haven't really ever deeply engaged with injustice. And so when we encounter scripture that speaks to that intense suffering and expresses those sharp cries for justice, it's upsetting to us. And I think, again, as I said, this is because we've forgotten how to lament, both individually and corporately. When we see injustice and suffering in front of us, we have been conditioned to somewhere down the American Protestant church road to just rush to easy answers and quick solutions. Slap a Jesus loves you sticker on it, call it a day, because that's what we're supposed to do. Don't ask God why. That sounds too much like doubt. We say things like, when God closes a door, he opens a window. Look for the positive. Don't take the time to dwell on the bad thing in front of you. Just move on as quickly as possible. And yet there's absolutely no biblical precedent for that. In fact, it's quite the opposite because scripture is rife with lament. Dr. Soon Chong Ra uh, wrote a, very, a book on this very topic called Prophetic Lament. And he argues in that book and other places that in the absence of lament, we lose our understanding of justice. I have it up here, I think. In the absence of lament, we lose our understanding of justice. If we don't take the time to practice lament, then will we even be able to recognize it? Recognize justice, let alone participate with Jesus in the work of bringing it about. That's what we risk losing. But maybe you're still thinking like, okay, I get it. Things were really bad back then. Things are bad now, and I need to lament more. But this still sounds like revenge. <laughs> and I know revenge isn't the way of Jesus. And you're absolutely right. But this is not revenge. Because the difference between revenge and justice is whose hands it falls into. And what must be remembered about this text is that the judgment displayed here is always dealt out by God, never humans, and that it always serves a redemptive purpose. So if you remember, the angel in verse 18 tells the saints, the apostles, and the prophets all in heaven to rejoice over the judgment of Babylon, that with violence it will be thrown down like a heavy rock, a millstone, into the sea. And so rejoice, because you're never going to hear the sounds of culture making come from that, that city ever again. You're never going to hear the sounds of business transactions or weddings or any of those things. So be, be excited. And then we read on in verse 23 and 24 that the reason why they should rejoice over Babylon's downfall is because, quote, all nations were deceived by Babylon's sorcery. And in it was found the blood of prophets, saints, and all who have been slaughtered on the earth. Everyone has been on the receiving end of Babylon's destruction. Meaning this isn't just a cry of injustice against the saints. The way of the empire is equal opportunity, violence, and death. Because all it cares about is its own survival. And so it's going to chew up and spit out whoever it wants to for its own ends. Christians are not. Michael Gorman, uh, who we've quoted a lot here, he argues that it's very likely that the reason that the Christian saints even lost their lives, became martyrs, was because they were bearing witnesses, sorry, they were bearing witness to the broad injustices of the empire that led to the death of all manner of people, not just Christians. 
And so he writes, and I have the quote up here because I think it's really, really important. He says, the desire for and the celebration of divine judgment for the murders of God's people is fundamentally grounded in a concern for the mistreatment of others and a profound desire to see God's will for the earth, the healing of the nations, as it will say later in Revelation 22, to come to pass. It's not about vengeance. Because as we sang earlier, God is just and he's true and he's holy. His judgment must fall against empires because it would be against his nature to do otherwise. And so in verse 21, the angel takes the, th the stone, throws it into the sea, and symbolically declares that Babylon, a.k.a. Rome, a.k.a. all empires, will be thrown out violently and ultimately in the same manner. And so this, this is very reminiscent of Jeremiah, who does the exact same thing in Jeremiah 51, declaring he, he throws a millstone into the sea and declares that Babylon will never rise again. But it's also reminiscent of something that Jesus does. In both Matthew 21 and Mark 11, there's this curious moment where Jesus also talks about hurling rocks into the sea. And it's in the story where Jesus curses the fig tree, if you remember this story. It takes place right around the time that Jesus entered Jerusalem, and he has his famous temple tantrum, as I like to call it. He cleanses the temple. He gets very upset. And what Jesus is doing here, he's taking direct aim at the temple. It was this place that was originally intended to be where God could meet the people. And it's now become a place of corruption. And he's very, very mad. And by flipping the tables, he's saying that this has to go. And Jesus must have looked like a total radical here. He's like disrupting the sacrificial system. Like, who does he think he is? And so right around this time, Matthew and Mark kind of tell the order differently. But around this time, he famously curses that fig tree. It's the one miracle that Jesus performs where he brings about death rather than healing and life. And so it really sticks out. And if you recall in the story, Jesus is hungry in Jerusalem. And he sees this fig tree. And it's in leaf, but it has no fruit. And so he curses it. It appears to be thriving, but on closer examination, it's not. And so when the disciples, who are very confused, are like, what just happened? I mean, they literally are like, what? <laughs> He tells them, if you have faith, you can not only what I, do what I just did to the fig tree, but you can tell this mountain behind me to be cast into the sea, and it will be done. Two helpful things to note here. Israel, of course, is identified with the temple. It is often symbolized in the Old Testament as a fig tree. Furthermore, when he's saying this, he happens to be in Jerusalem, next to not just any mountain, but the temple mount which is considered to be what should be the holiest of all places, right? And so while the story often gets read as sort of like an a injunction to like the power of prayer, like not to diminish that, that's, that's for sure, we need that. But what gets lost in the shuffle is Jesus' fiery commentary on the temple. Because what he's giving is a very thinly veiled criticism on the temple's state, that, hey, just as I did to this fig tree, you too can toss out fruitless, broken systems right into the sea. Systems that, like this fig tree and the temple itself, appear on the surface to be good, be, to be doing good, but are in fact corrupt to the core. Again, this is Jesus at his most provocative. 
It's because he's threatening the system because it's no longer functioning in the way that it was designed to function. And so it's got to go. Because here's the thing. Jesus is not afraid of dismantling systems, especially ones that disguise themselves as good. Parodies of power, as we've said. Empires. When Jesus cleanses the temple, and he says that bit about making my house, um, uh, my house of prayer into a den of robbers, he's quoting Jeremiah, that exact thing, Jeremiah 51. And Jeremiah, in his time, was also making a scene at the temple gates. And here's where, there's the larger quote from what Jesus is pulling from. In Jeremiah, it says, Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are safe, only to go on doing all of these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? And so Jesus says in his day, you think this temple, this system is going to make you safe? Like you think you can go on stealing, continue in your violence, and then just dress it up as good? Think again. Because I don't give one wit about the system. If you're abusing others, it doesn't matter how good the system started out to be or how good it looks on paper, I will toss this whole thing into the sea. Watch me. Similarly, here in Revelation 18, what's being celebrated is that Babylon, in its arrogance, as it talks about in this chapter, it thought it could grow rich off of human lives, as it says in verse 13, as if they were horses or jewels or spices or fine linens or any other commercial item, and they thought they could get away with it forever. No, it's going down, and it's a good thing, and it's worth celebrating because, as Gorman says, the judgment of empire means the salvation of the world. Um, I don't know how many of you have been listening to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, and if you haven't, it's a podcast uh, pr produced by Christianity Today that's been documenting the power and the patriarchy that ultimately corrupted and took down a very widely influential Seattle megachurch. And I don't know for sure, but the title almost sounds like a reference to uh, that big tome by Edward Gibbons, The Rise or the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, which sort of invites this empire uh, comparison. But sadly, this is not the only story of Christian empire being toppled by its own corruption and sin. Because if you've been in the church long enough, as I have, you are all too familiar with a story, whether you've experienced it for yourself or close enough, right? Countless Christian leaders, people who started out trying to do good or at least had teams of people behind them who thought they were doing good work in the name of Jesus have fallen prey to the allure of power, and they've become abusive. And then those in charge, rather than exposing the sin and repenting and placing themselves under accountability, doing the work, they covered it up, and they lied about it. Rather than protecting people, they protected systems. They protected the empire they built. And as we just talked about with Jesus, nothing discussed the heart of God more. On this latest episode, one uh, former staff member who ended up leaving the church before it collapsed, um, he was interviewed, and he talked about how hard it was to be a part of something, um, to look back on this time where he thought he was doing so good and he was doing a good job at it, and what it was was ultimately harmful to a lot of people. 
but that in the end it was good to see it end, to see it fall. And he said, quote, it felt like we needed to lose. We deserved to lose. And it was a relief when we did. This, this recent exposure of the American church's empire building, whatever you want to call it, has led many of us who were raised in the church um, into a period of deconstruction, deconstructing our faith. Johnny alluded to this a few weeks ago at our outdoor service. And rightfully so. It feels like this whole system was built on lies. It's hard to know what's true anymore. Like, what was genuine? What was Jesus? And it's forced us to reevaluate what we were taught to believe the essence of the gospel was. Was what we thought was the gospel really just a parody of power? As N.T. Wright says, it's all too easy, even for the followers of the Lamb, to become embroiled in imperial sins and to run the risk of sharing the plagues. But part of our job as faithful witnesses, though, is to be vigilant about when these human systems cross the line, when it turns out that, oh no, this whole time we thought we were building the kingdom of God, it turns out we're, we've been building Babel. And part of the job is also to recognize when it's time to burn it down and to start again. Because maybe it needs to go, just like Jesus said about the Temple Mount. And this is what the entire book of Revelation has been about. Being able to tell apart the fake from the real. Are we following a system that derives its power from the dragon or the lamb? Are we following true lamb power or its ugly counterfeit? Final thought, Missio, before we head to the table. We may be tempted because of our own personal experiences in the church or what we've witnessed happen to those around us to remain in the ashes. Deconstruction, as good and as necessary as it may, as it may be, is not a place to stay. It may take a, take a good long season. Like, I am not suggesting that this is an overnight experience whatsoever, but it is not a final destination. Because here's the thing. As bad as humans have messed things up when they were left in charge, God still plans to use them to build things. You might think here that this judgment in Revelation 18 is so strong, it's a portrait of a city gone so bad, that the idea of building a new city is unthinkable. Like, it's just, let's just go for anarchy, right? But, spoiler alert, I'm spoiling all sorts of things for you this morning, I'm sorry. Revelation 21 which we'll get to in a few weeks, it tells a different story. Because God still wants to dwell with us. He wants to build a city. But one that is good and beautiful and just. And no evil, suffering, death, corruption can ever touch it. The end of our text today, in 19, 4 through 10, the very last words we read, it ends in celebration. But not celebration of divine justice, but a celebration of divine love. The covenant between the lamb and his bride is renewed, and now the real work can begin. We can set about building this new city because, thanks be to God, despite many missteps along the way, God's plan has never changed. He says, look, I'm building 
I'm making all things new. And he invites us into that work. Missio, let's pray before we come to the table. Spirit, you are good. You see all the suffering and injustice in this world, even the things that we're blind to, that we can't see. In your mercy, Lord, be near to those who are oppressed, who suffer. Thank you that you are a God of justice, who hears our cries when we call to you. Teach us how to lament with those around us. Fill us with deep compassion, Lord. Lord, we long for the day of your kingdom of justice and goodness. Make us into your resurrection people. In the powerful name of Jesus, we ask these things.